Okay, just uh, one comment about the uh, uh, one announcement we have, which is on uh, early voting. And uh, election day is actually next Tuesday. And um, if you live in the Spring Branch area, one of the early voting places is a Presbyterian church just on the uh, north side, right off of Gessner, right on Gessner on the north side of uh, north of Hammerley. And we went to the one, the Trinity, whatever it is, Mendenhall place down there uh, off of Worth the other day. The parking lot had no parking places. I, I did find one finally, and I went in, and the line was almost out the door. We went over to the one down uh, here on Gessner past Hammerley, and there's nobody there. We were in and out in le- less than 10 minutes, and no lines, lots of uh, voting booths, and there were like three people in there when we voted. And there must have been, they must have 12 or 15 voting stations. So there, we just parked, went in, came out. There's a handicapped place, so if somebody can't get out and go in, they'll come out and bring you the stuff there. So just wanted to let you know that. So uh, it's very convenient and very quick. Otherwise, you'll have a lot of people and a lot of lines and a lot of problems. I think that's it. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started tonight, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're walking with the Lord in right relationship with him ready to study the Word and to focus on what the Holy Spirit has to teach us this evening. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's a great privilege that we can come together to be in each other's presence, that we are assembled together, encouraging one another by our presence, that we're here tonight to study your word, and that there are others who believe and think and desire the same things that we do. And that's part of the purpose of our assembling together. Father, we're thankful so much for your word and the light that it sheds on our thinking and the way in which you have revealed it to us that we might have to think about it, reflect upon it, come to understand it. And, Father, we pray that you would help us to uh, see what is going on here, the passage we're studying, and help us to uh, understand the significance of this and application for our lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 11. And tonight we're really looking at the prelude to battle because we have a long section here. Uh, Judges 11.1 introduces Jephthah, and most of what uh, we know about Jephthah extends down to 12.7. So that's 47 verses dedicated to Jephthah. Now, the whole section is not nearly as long as that of Gideon. That's why, as I said when we taught that, it's the center of the book. But in both places, you have... A, a, a leader who is 
empowered by God, the Holy Spirit comes upon them to empower them in the area of uh, leadership and military uh, leadership specifically. And in both cases, you have a conclusion that really doesn't leave the nation off any better than it was when they came before they came along. In fact, it's worse. But these are leaders that God raised up, and they are listed in Hebrews chapter 11 as men who were examples of faith. And so we know that they're all believers, number one. Number two, we know that that even though they had a lot of failures, it's because they were products of their culture. They compromised with the culture. They did not renew their, their thinking, and they conf- were too conformed to the world. And there's a lesson for that. Often we get the leaders that that we have because they are the products of the culture that we have. And we're all that way, every one of us, and we have flaws and foibles in our thinking because we are the products of a postmodern, a modernist or postmodernist worldview and culture. And it is our mission as part of our own personal spiritual life is not to be conformed to that. And we have to figure out all the garbage that's in our soul and in our thinking, and we have to flush it out. We have to exchange it for divine viewpoint. And that's the whole process of our, our spiritual life and spiritual growth. So we've seen how things deteriorate through the period of the judges. Uh, the judges are not perfect. They're not great spiritual giants. And, and as you progress through the... Um, through the book, you realize that, that they, they have profound flaws, but they are chosen by God. What's interesting is Othniel, not Ehud, not Deborah, Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, and Samson are all, uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon those four, and they become uh, leaders. But that doesn't mean they're, they're spiritual mature because the Holy Spirit isn't given for spiritual maturity or spiritual growth or spiritual life in the Old Testament, given to leaders of the nation to accomplish the task that God has given them in leading the nation. Now, one of the things that we get to do tonight, it's not grammar. It's that other fun subject, geography. Because when you get into this, uh, it's, there's a lot of geography, and it's helpful to understand it. And so I've got uh, several maps. I'm glad we have the HD uh, projectors and video and everything now because they show up even better uh, on your screen if you're watching at home or on your uh, on your monitor on your computer than they do uh, on my computer or, or even here. So let's just run through the first two or three slides, or just to orient you to the geography of Israel. Those of you who've been there have a leg up on this. Those of you who'd like to go need to refresh yourself uh, about this. And I hope to have something out within the next, uh, I'm going to say, eight to ten days before I go to Tucson on um, on the, some more details on the, on the trip. So here's a map. This is a map. You have the Jordan River split down the middle. Uh, that's that blue line you see. It's faint. It's as narrow little blue line, but it goes from that body of water at the top center, which is the bottom of the Sea of Galilee, and it goes all the way down to the Dead Sea. So you've got um, on the west side of that river, on the left side of that river, 
This is uh, the central hill country of Samaria, and you see that the tribes associated with it are Ephraim in the south, a west part of the tribe of Manasseh. Above that, uh, the the, the shady areas where you have the, the hills and the mountains and the rugged terrain, and then you see the lighter area up here going from Beit Shan here where they hung uh, Saul's body uh, on the tree, I mean on the wall, uh, and Jonathan's body on the wall, and then you have Megiddo here, which was a very, which is a very ancient site we go to on every trip, uh, trip to Israel. The last time I was there, I think they said they have dug through 32 layers of, of, of uh, settlement at, at Megiddo. And it's so important because it's right on the main trade route going from uh, the lower left all the way over to the Mediterranean, and it goes up to the right through, through Galilee, up through the um, uh, Golan Heights and across to Damascus and Syria. So it's a major trade route, so that was a fortified area there. But this is the valley of Har, the Mount of Megiddo, the Valley of Har Megiddo, or Armageddon. So that's over here on the, but the, our, our focus is on what's happening on the east side of the Jordan River. You have the tribe of East Manasseh, half-tribe, uh, has their land over there. The major settlements are Jabesh, Gilead. These names are hyphenated because you have similar name towns or cities on the west side as on the east, on the east side. So you have Ramoth Gilead, you have Jabesh Gilead, and if you just go right down to the very bottom, you have Rabah here. This is a capital of, for the uh, uh, city that is now Amman, the capital of, of Jordan. So that just gives you a little orientation. What you have in this map very, very faintly is you have a river going up here, which is the Yarmouk. You have a river down here, which is the Jabbok. And then there's another one further south. So here's a different map. Come on. There. Okay, so I put Yarmouk in here because you don't have eyes good enough to read the faint blue here. This is the Yarmouk River which is the uh, northern border of, of this, this area. North of there, you have the Golan, or what is described in the Bible as Bashan. Then the southern border of this area, uh, that this is Manasseh, it, when, once it's the tribes there, and Gad is south of there, is the Jabbok River, or Yabok River in Hebrew. This is where... Um, uh, Peniel is located where uh, 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 Jacob wrestled with the angel. And so these are the two major rivers and that border the area that, that is a focal point here. So th in this map, I've got it outlined a little more. You have the Yarmouk up here. You have the Jabok here, the Jabok River here. And so Ammon is south of the Jabbok. That's, I mean, excuse me, Ammon is off to the west. That's important. They don't have land in here. They didn't have land here before the conquest. And so they're in this sort of uh, uh, ambiguous territory that's uh, west of where uh, Edom and Moab 
and the Amorites, not Ammonites, Amorites with an R, they had this area here. So the Amorites were up in this area. The um, uh, uh, Moabites were in this area, and south of them were the were the um, Edomites, and that's what we see in this picture. Bashan is up here north. I got that a little too up north of the. Uh, no, I have that right. That's the uh, Yarmouk up here. This is up here, Bashan. It's to the north, and then you have. Um, the area for Moab here, you had the uh, uh, Amorites were in this area, and then Edom is south. And we get into this in the negotiations over the land uh, in the central part of the chapter because the uh, king of the Ammonites is saying, this is our land. You stole it from us. And so it's it's all about real estate transaction here. So you have to have an understanding of where these borders are and what the what the geography is here, and then uh, Edom is far to the south, and you have to remember that that Edom is the nickname for Esau. Esau is Jacob's twin brother, so they're distant cousins of the Israelites, and then um, Abram's nephew Lot, after uh, he was delivered from Sodom, uh, he and his daughters, uh, daughters get him drunk and they commit incest with him and each one of them has a son and one is Ammon and one is uh, uh, Moab. So that's where they come from. So they're all sort of distant cousins of the of the Israelites. And we'll get into some of the other details because we're going to have to talk a lot about this, getting into numbers in Deuteronomy, the travels of the uh, conquest generation before they entered into the land, that sort of thing. So last time what we saw was as that God had uh, brought up or raised up or allowed the Ammonites to come up and muster their troops to attack Israel. This is the fourth cycle of discipline from Leviticus chapter 26, where God has promised to Israel that if they're disobedient to him, if they succumb to idolatry, if they, um, uh, you know, commit these horrible sins, burning their children in the uh, fiery altars of Chemosh and Moab and Baal, then God was going to bring five different uh, successively increasing punishments or judgments upon the nation. Uh, the Hebrew word is, that is used is translated curse, but it's not a curse like uh, some juju black magic curse. It really refers to a judgment upon people. You have blessing and curses. The blessings are God's blessings. The curses are the judgments God will bring upon the nation. And so the, uh, they're in the fourth cycle of discipline as they're coming under military invasion, as they have before. And we read that the people of Ammon mustered troops, set up a camp in Gilead. Gilead is the alternate name for this uh, area in the Transjordan, the area across the Jordan. And in some of these maps, it'll actually have that, and you'll have the name Gilead written. But you see it in the names Jabesh Gilead, Ramoth Gilead, and and that. And so here we have, uh, no, it's not even mentioned on, yeah, here it is. Right here, you see it. It's, I've got it a little bit covered up. It's the G I 
the L's under the red line, E-A-D. So this is all referred to uh, as, as, as Gilead. And they're looking for somebody. Who is the man who will bring, begin the fight against the uh, people of Ammon? They, they have no idea. And so Jephthah shows up. He's introduced in verse 1, Jephthah the Gileadite. He's called a mighty man of valor. He is a Hayil Gibor. He is, which is a term for a, a mighty warrior, strong warrior. That term was used and applied to, uh, to David. And so his, this man comes up, and we asked the question last time, who's this man, Jephthah? What qualifies him to lead? As, as church-age believers, we often go to passages like 1 Timothy 3 uh, for qualifications of leadership, Titus 1, qualification. But these are leaders in the church. These are not military leaders. They're not political leaders. They're the, uh, and what we see is that, that God raises up a lot of very odd people in the old in, in the Old Testament to lead Israel. Jephthah's one of them. Gideon's one of them. Samson's certainly one of them. Later on in the Northern Kingdom, he raises up this guy named Jehu, whose um, his primary purpose is to uh, wipe out the the house of Omri, Omri the father of Ahab, because they brought uh, through, through Ahab's marriage to uh, Jezebel. They brought the worship of the fertility gods into the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And Jehu's just, just a, a, a strong military leader, and he comes in and he just slaughters, uh, just annihilates, massacres the family and descendants of Omri and Ahab. That was what God purposed for him. But eventually he succumbs to arrogance as well. This is the trend that goes all the way through these books from Joshua, Jer- uh, Joshua Judges, First, uh, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings. Uh, you see the what happens as a result of Israel's disobedience to the Mosaic Law. God calls a nation. He calls a nation out. Um, uh, he de- defines a nation with Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then their descendants he takes because of the disobedience of of Jacob's boys, because of their assimilation to the pagan culture, which is the trend all through the history of the Old Testament. They just the the Jews are just in love with Gentile paganism, and they adapt to it and they assimilate. And so God had to take them into Egypt. And when he took them into Egypt, the Egyptians despised the Semites. And they hated Semites more than any uh, grand wizard of the KKK despised any um, black person in America. They, just, they wouldn't even eat in the same room. They would not uh, touch them. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. And so there, that, that protected uh, the Israelites from assimilating into Egyptian culture. So there they grew to about two and a half to three million strong. Then God brought them out of Egypt in the Exodus, took them down to Mount Sinai, and there he revealed the Mosaic law to them. And, and I'm going to ask you a question and you're going to be able to answer it. You don't have to answer it out loud, but you're probably in the, in the very tiny minority of people who even understand this. What is the purpose and function of the Mosaic Law? It is the constitution of the nation Israel. 
had a conversation with a guy the other day trying to explain that, and, and he had never heard that before. Not too much, not too much younger than I am, been in different churches, but he's been in replacement theology churches, Lutheran churches. And I said, he quoted something to me. I said, that didn't have anything to do with the church. That was the law for Moses. And not only that, but God never held a Gentile in the Old Testament responsible for obedience to the Mosaic law. They are judged for their idolatry, but that's because idolatry was, was wrong before the Mosaic Law came along, but the Mosaic Law defined God's relationship to Israel and defined what the consequences were. And every book after that, up through the uh, end of uh, Second Kings, when at that point the northern kingdom, southern kingdom had both been defeated, first by Assyria, then by Babylon, and the Jews had been taken out of the land. And what you see over and over again is the same cycle the same cyclic pattern we're seeing in judges. They never learn. And they had to get their metaphorical butt hammered by the defeat by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And when they came back from Babylon, they said, whatever we do, we've got to set up our understanding of, of the Mosaic law in such a way that we never succumb to idolatry again. Of course, the idolatry they succumbed to was an intellectual arrogance, and that led to the rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. So we constantly see this cycle of leader after leader after leader, not just in judges, but all the way through both the northern and southern kingdoms, assimilating to the culture. They never make that break with the with that Canaanite culture and that the worship of Baal and the Asherah is a constant problem all the way through until God has to take the, everyone out of the, out of the land fits under the fifth cycle of discipline. So, uh, he has unusual leaders and he, what qualifies Jephthah to lead is he's got a, a natural ability at leadership. He has a, an administrative ability. He has an, he's a believer. We know that he wouldn't be listed in Hebrews 11 if he weren't a believer. And so he has what God can use to defeat the Ammonites. But it's not because he is a spiritual giant at all. And his character is one we'll talk about, and we talked about last time, is one that is, is not one that we would want to emulate. Uh, he's, he's rough. He's tough. He's a hard-nosed negotiator, which is a good thing in terms of he's battle-hardened, and so he can win the victory. Uh, and so we ask these questions, where's God in the raising up of Jephthah? Because God never raises up Jephthah. That's not stated. It's implied because the Holy Spirit will come upon him. But he's, he's raised up by God through God's providential plan. And it's not direct. God raised up others. You have the angel of the Lord commissioning Gideon. Uh, you have, uh, before Gideon, you have Deborah and Barak, and Deborah is a prophetess, and she is a judge appointed by God, raised up by God. You have Othniel. Uh, these are raised up by God, but not, but not Jephthah. And so there's nothing there. He, God is completely in the background and we're not even given any enough information in the book of Judges to, to make a case for, for his 
relationship to God, to Yahweh. We know it had it because of Hebrews 11, but if you just have have uh, judges, you, 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 you can't find it. So his negatives are that he's the bastard son of a prostitute. A woman who is a prostitute is at the lowest level in Jewish culture. She's violating the law because of what she is doing, because of her uh, sexual immorality, and he's a nobody because he is the son of a prostitute, and his father is one of the aristocrats. He is uh, um, Gilead. He is named for the uh, uh, progenitor of uh, this area. So he is, uh, he's, a, he's a nobody. And then he is an outcast from his family. His stepbrothers or half-brothers, rather, kick him out because they don't want to share any of their inheritance uh, with him. And so he goes out and he, he joins a gang of bandits out in the desert, and he rises to the level of leadership, which means he knows how to handle a lot of really uh, tough, nasty individuals. And he has leadership skills and organizational skills, and he has all of that is used by God to train him to be the kind of leader that will be able to defeat uh, the Ammonites. So he's associated with these outlaws, the dregs of society, and he operates outside of the law. He He's a Gileadite, which if you're an Ephraimite on the Cisjordan side, on the west side of the Jordan, they look down upon their uh, brothers on the other side of the Jordan. And so uh they look he's not somebody that has any sort of prestige or education or pedigree or um, cv that's going to give him any kind of attention so we went through the passages he goes out into the land of tob with these worthless men banded together and he goes out raiding with with them and when ammon attacks verses four through six the leaders in Israel can't find anybody to lead them. And so finally they say, the only person we know around who has the skills set to do this is Jephthah. And so they go out and they're basically making a deal with the devil in their minds. They have to go out and uh, and invite him to be their commander so that they can win. Now, God is working behind the scenes. It's not direct. It's indirect, a lot like God's direction uh, in the in the church age. And uh, Jephthah asked him the hard questions. If you hate me so much, you can expel me from my father's house. Why do you want me now? And they said, that's why we turned again to you now that you may go with us and fight against the people of Ammon and be our head, be our leader. Uh, the word they use there means that, that he is going to be their uh, commander-in-chief. He, they're putting him in charge of, of them. So Jephthah uh, makes a, a deal with them, and he says, if you take me back home to fight against the people of Ammon and the Lord delivers them, shall I be your head? So he's negotiating with them, and they they uh, they meet his demands, and they said, the Lord will be a, a witness to us. So then we have this interesting verse 
And verse 11, now last week I only got through verse 10. Verse 11, then Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and commander over them. So he is, uh, he is both civil and military commander over, uh, Gilead at this point. And then, uh, Jephthah spoke all his words. So he is making a vow at this time before the Lord in Mizpah. Now there's a Mizpah on the other side of the Jordan, on the west side of the Jordan, in Cisjordan. But this is a Mizpah that we don't know too much about that's on the west side, and there's never any indication that there's any kind of a uh, sacred site on the west, on the east side of the Jordan. But there apparently was something, some sort of altar uh, at, uh, at Mizpah. So on the uh, on the east side of the Jordan. So he, uh, the, an oath is sworn, a covenant is entered into in effect. The conclusion that we see from all of this is that, number one, God's in the background. He's not mentioned. He, he does not, it does not say that God delivered them, but we see God's grace in spite of their rebellious, Israel's rebelliousness, disobedience, and carnality. And the same thing is true for us. Even when we're out of fellowship, God is still working in our lives. Even when we're out of fellowship, the Holy Spirit is working in our lives. Now, the Holy Spirit isn't working in our life to produce spiritual growth. He's working in our lives to get us to turn back to God uh, and to confess sin so that then he can go back to working in terms of what he does when we're in partnership with God and walking in, walking by the Spirit. Only when we're walking by the Spirit is he working to produce that positive uh, fruit and character in our life. Uh, when we're out of fellowship, some people get the idea, well, the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything. Yeah, he does. He's trying to convict you of sin. He's trying to wake you up. He's trying to get your attention, and uh, you can uh, ignore him. And what we see in other passages is that this is this is called... Uh, quenching and grieving the spirit uh, fall into that kind of a category. Second thing that we want to make note of is if you're still alive, God still has a plan for your life. Israel's still there. Israel is still in the land. Israel has not been taken out of the land, and God still has a plan for their life. And no matter how far you get away from the Lord over a period of time in your life, if God hasn't taken you home, then you are... Uh, in a place where God will still uh, use you no matter how badly you have messed up. Uh, there's grace and forgiveness. And third, no matter how badly you self-destruct in life, God will never leave you or forsake you. Uh, Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's always faithful no matter how spiritually barren your life. He's still the one who brings life where there's death. So, that is what we learn here. Now, in this rest of this chapter, from verse 12 to verse 40, that's as far as I'm going to go tonight, I'm going to deal with the whole issue of Jephthah's vow uh, next time because that is a, a whole topic in and of itself. So what we see in verses 12 through 28, from 11.12 down to 11.28, is that uh, Jephthah is a harsh, strong uh, knowledgeable negotiator, and he just owns the Ammonites in the negotiations. They try to uh, intimidate him with some uh, uh, fake history, 
and uh, he owns them on it, even though he doesn't get mo- some of his facts right, but he's got a better control of the data than the Ammonite king. And then we see in verse 29, Jephthah, uh, Jephthah is given undeserved grace by God to ensure the victory, and that is that the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And that's as far as we'll get tonight, and the next night we'll get to the vow. So in this first part, we see the opening statements that are made in the negotiation. In Judges 11.12, Jephthah then sent messengers to the king. The word for messenger is the same word that's used for an angel. It's malach. And so he is sending an envoy, a messenger, an ambassador uh, to the Ammonite king uh, and has told him exactly what to say. And because when the Ammonite king, when the, the envoy speaks to the Ammonite king, he speaks in the first person singular. He doesn't say, why are you attacking us? He, he puts it, he is speaking as the substitute, as the mouthpiece for Jephthah. And he says, what do you have against me? Okay, so Jephthah has taken upon himself the identity of the uh, Israelite people. He represents them, and so it is uh, the conflict between the king of the Ammonites, and Jephthah. Just as we talk today, we say things like Putin invaded uh, Ukraine. Putin is fighting Zelensky. We talked about uh, Churchill fighting Hitler. Uh, We often talk about the head of an organization or a country or an army being the one who's fighting the other one. And I think that that's what we see in passages like uh, uh, 1 Peter uh, 5, where Satan goes about like a roaring lion. I don't think that's just talking about Satan himself. He's not omnipresent. I think that's talking about Satan and all of his demons. And the same thing is true, I think, in uh, Revelation 20, when it says that Satan is cast into the abyss. Uh, What about all the fallen angels and the demons? I think they're with him. I think all of Satan's... Uh, uh, henchmen are with him in uh, in the abyss, and there's no threat to the people on the earth from a demonic source. I think that's one of the reasons you have the millennial kingdom, because the kids that are born in the millennial kingdom will all have sin natures, and they're going to sin, but God's going to show that the problem is us. It's not that the devil made us do it. And so in that last dispensation, it's going to be, there's no, not going to be that enemy of, of Satan. You know, we have the world, the flesh, and the devil are the three enemies we deal with. Well, the devils and all of his angels are going to be uh, given a time out in the abyss for a thousand years. So Jephthah is the one who initiates the first contact here, and he says, what do you have against me? He's taken the initiative and he's he's trying to take the the high ground here, and put the um, put the king of the Ammonites on his back foot to put him off balance a little bit. Why why do you have what do you have against me that you come to fight against me and my land? Notice three times me me and my. 
He is taking ownership for the success of the mission and defense of Israel. And then in verse 13, we have the response of the king of Ammon. He answers the messengers of Jephthah. He says, because Israel took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok. See, if I hadn't taken you through the maps and the geography first, you'd be scratching your head, turned to the back of your Bible, saying, what's that all about? So uh, he says, you took away my land when they came up out of Egypt from the Arnon as far as the Jabbok and to the Jordan. Now, therefore, restore these lands peaceably. So that's his demand. He wants to come in and steal the real estate that he has no right to. Uh, Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Uh, That's what Hitler did in World War II. That's really what happens a lot of times in wars. It's all about real estate. That's what Putin's doing. Now, you'll hear a lot of people who say, well, you know, Ukraine was part of the Soviet Union, and so therefore, and Crimea was always used by Russia, and they just come up with these, pardon the expression, balderdash, scubalon arguments. Because what happened at the, when the Soviet Union broke up was Crimea was given to Ukraine. And there's a whole history uh, between U- Ukrainians are not the same as Russians. And, and that, uh, that misunderstanding lies at the foundation of a lot of these bogus arguments you're hearing from the right today. The only reason they want to be against helping the Ukrainians as well, it may not be the only reason, but primary reason is Biden is for it and the Democrats are for it. So they're, they, if Biden's for it, it's got to be wrong. But, but the reality is the Ukrainians back in 1930 to 32, uh, uh, were seriously abused and, 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 uh, uh, you know, an example of genocide took place under Stalin. There was a famine in Russia. So Stalin sent uh, sent the Red Army into Ukraine to sweep up every last grain of wheat and take it back to uh, to Russia, to Soviet Union, although Ukraine was part of it. They were treated like a redheaded stepchild, and he took all the uh, grain back to Russia, and that winter, three to five million Ukrainians starved to death, and over the next couple of winters, several million more starved to death because of that. The Ukrainians are of different stock. The, uh, I read one article that said, well, you know, this is just, they're just brothers. Yeah, think about World War One. World War One, you had the King of England, you had um, the, the Kaiser in Germany, and you had the Tsar in Russia, and they were first cousins. Why were they at war? Nobody was given this kind of a bogus, well, they're just somehow, you know, cousins of each other. That's just a ignorant argument put forth by ignorant people. And what we have here is a case where this guy's just coming out of the, the east, and he wants to take and steal this land that God rightfully gave uh, to, to uh, Israel. It's, the border is on the north, the Yarmouk River that ran east-west and feeds into the Jordan, and on the south you have the uh, uh, Jabbok River, uh, which also runs uh, from east to west and feeds into the Jordan River. South of the Jabbok River, you have 
um, you had the area of Moab, and below that you had Edom. And on this map, it's got Ammon on the west, on the east, rather. Ammon had this uh, ambiguous, uh, undefined territory to the east of Edom, Moab, and um, the the um, Amorites who dwelt up in this area. We'll look at that in just a minute. So in these negotiations, uh, Jephthah is going to set forth uh, four arguments uh, to def- to establish his case, and he just and he does a great job of uh, of establish of establishing his case. And so the first is in the sort of the prelude uh, to the uh, to the negotiations. Uh, Jephthah again sent messengers to the king of the people of Ammon and said to him, "Thus says Jephthah." Israel did not take away the land of Moab nor the land of the people of Ammon. He uses a presuppositional argument against the Ammonites. He said, your your basic assumption is all wrong. Uh, You've got fake history, and you're trying to convince us of your legitimacy, but it's it's, uh, uh, just propaganda that you're using. Uh, The king's... The king of Ammonites' historical argument is based on a false historical claim. So he's partially right in what he said. He understood. That's, that's interesting. I skipped past that, but it's interesting that he said he's knowledgeable about the Israelites' past, that they came out of Egypt, and that they came up around the eastern side of, of the Jordan. They didn't come up from the south. He, he has some truth here, but then it's, uh, he has lies woven into it. And that's where, um, uh, Jephthah is going to take him to task. And he says, first of all, Israel didn't take away the land of Moab nor the land of the people of Ammon. So here we have a bigger map with some extra circles out to the right. Uh, Edom down to the south. This is where Petra is located. It's south of the uh, southern end of the Dead Sea. And you have um, uh, a river that runs right here. I'll identify that in a minute. Then you have Moab. And then you have uh, the Amorites were up to the north. And Ammon is, again, off to, to the east. So this area is uh, Gilead. This is Bashan. You have Og of Bashan in numbers and the fight there. So here's another map putting Ammon off to the east, and they did not have territory along the Jordan River uh, at all. In Numbers uh, 21.12, uh, you have this description of the Israelites and their movement from Kadesh Barnea, when God is finally telling them to move out and go around uh, their their cousins, the Edomites and the Moabites, they they, they left uh, Mount Hor, where uh, Aaron died and was buried, and that's not the uh, uh, Jordanian Mount Hor. If you go to Petra, some of you've been with me uh, there. If you go up to the top of the the lookout of Petra. And then it says, you see a sign as far away as you can see, and it says, 
look out this way. It has an arrow pointing that way. And you go through about five or six of these signs, each of them about 300 yards apart. Finally, you get way out on this, on this little finger of a ridge. And off to the left on another ridge, you see this white building that was built back in about the 12th or 13th century that the Arabs claim is the tomb of, of Aaron. And they claim that that is Mount Hor. But if you read the biblical account in Numbers, they come from Kadesh to Mount Hor where Aaron dies, and then they come around the southern end of the Dead Sea, and then they go around to the east of, of, of Moab, at Moab and Edom. So that's what Numbers 21 says from there. Uh, from there, that is Mount Hor, they moved and camped in the Valley of Zered. From there, they moved and camped on the other side of the Arnon, which is in the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites. Notice not Ammonites. Uh, from the border of the Amorites, for the Arnon is the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. So here's another, our map. This river down here is the Zered. Uh, Edom is south of there. Petra's down here. You have the Zered River. Then the Arnon River, in between it's Moab, and then uh, north of, of Moab is where you had the Amor- Amorites. And here is the city of Heshbon. We're going to read about that in just a minute. You have the city of Heshbon, and then uh, up to the far north you're going to have uh, uh, Bashan up by the, to the east of the Sea of Galilee. So these are the four rivers that are used for boundaries. Now, Jephthah is going to set forth a historical argument, and it shows that he has a fairly decent understanding of his history of the Israelites. He says, For when Israel came up from Egypt, they walked through the wilderness as far as the Red Sea and came to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, please let me pass through your land. But the king of Edom would not heed. And in like manner, they sent to the king of Moab, but he would not consent. So Israel remained in Kadesh. And they went along through the wilderness and bypassed the land of Edom and the land of Moab and came to the east side of the land of Moab and encamped on the other side of the Arnon, but they did not enter the border of Moab. And so this is this is the map. They come around from the uh, south. Let's go back to this map. They come around the south. Uh, Mount Hor, biblical Mount Hor, where Aaron was buried, was somewhere in this vicinity. They come around um, to the south. Uh, Kadesh is over here. It's not on this map. So they, I'm a little far, too far north. So Kadesh is down in this area. They swing around this way down by the Red Sea, the sea uh, down by Elat, and they come up, and Edom says, you're not coming through here, so they come around on the eastern side of Edom and the eastern side of Moab, and then according to the text I just read, uh, they get on the other side of the Arnon up here, and they're going to head in, and they'll cross the Jordan right here to go into the promised land. So there's the uh, Jabbok, here's the Arnon, they're coming up on this side, and the, ignore, the, um, 
the lines that are on there, that's a map dealing with something else, but it has the best explanation of things. So all, all these maps have Ammon to the east. Then in verse 19 we read, Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, king of Heshbon. Now see, when we look at the map here, here's Heshbon. Who's the king of their ruling there? It's a, Sihon, the king of the Amorites. So everything, all this land from the Arnon all the way up to the Yarmouk, all of this territory was under the control of the Amorites, uh, uh, according to uh, according to the scripture. So I don't want to take the time to do it all tonight because it'd just take too long to work through all the passages, but I'll read some of them to you. In Deuteronomy 2, 16 through 19, Moses summarizes their travel. He says, So it was when all the men of war had finally perished from among the people that the Lord spoke to me, Moses is writing this, spoke to Moses saying, This day you are to cross over at Ar, the boundary of Moab. And when you come near the people of Ammon, do not harass them or meddle with them, for I will not give you any of the land of the people of Ammon as a possession, because I have given it to the descendants of Lot as a possession. So he's clearly making a distinction here that they're going to come around here and they're not getting any of the land of the Ammonites, which is to the east and to the north. And then in Numbers 20, we get a, a more complete statement. Moses sent messengers from Kadesh to the king of Eden. Thus says your brother Israel, you know all the hardship that has befallen us, how our fathers went down to Egypt, and we dwelt in Egypt a long time, and the Egyptians afflicted us and our fathers. When we cried out to the Lord, he heard our voice and sent the angel and brought us up out of Egypt, and now we are here in Kadesh, a city on the edge of your border. Please let us pass through your country. And Edom says, you shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with the sword. So the children of Israel said, we'll go by the highway, and if I or my livestock drink of any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. Then he said, you shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men with a strong hand and refused to give Israel passage to his territory. So this is why they had to go around, because God uh, prohibited them from doing that. So then they come up to the north, and they're dealing with the territory of the Amorites, and the king, the leader, is Sihon, and he's in Heshbon, and Israel said to him, let us pass through your land into our place. But Sihon did not trust Israel to pass through his territory, so Sihon gathered all his people together and camped in Jahaz and fought against Israel. And the Lord God of Israel delivered Sihon and all his people into the hand of Israel, and they defeated him. Thus Israel gained possession of what? The land of the Amorites. So this is when, when you look at the map, that's everything from the Arnon all the way up to the Yarmouk. God gave that to them when they defeated Sihon, the king of the, uh, of the Amorites. So it goes on, then Israel... Or did I repeat that? Twenty-one. That was Judges. That's that's what I just read. Is what um, what Jephthah said. Now in Numbers twenty-one, we read: Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, saying, "Let 
let me pass through your land, will not turn aside in the fields or vineyards, yada, yada. But Sion would not let uh, allow Israel to pass through his territory. So Sion gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness, and he came to Jahaz and fought against them. Then Israel defeated him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok. Okay, so that goes up to the Jabbok here. And then uh, we read, So Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites and Heshbon and in all of its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sion, king of the Amorites, who had fought against uh, the former king of Moab. So this takes him to the... Now you have this other guy, Og, king of Bashan, and he's coming down from the north, and the Israelites are going to defeat him too, and that's when they take all the land uh, to the Yarmuk. So that's uh, Judges 11.22. Then Jephthah wraps up his arguments, and he said they took possession of all the territory of the Amorites from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the wilderness to the Jordan and in other words, you don't have a leg to stand on, and Jephthah understands the history there. Now he's going to give a theological argument. It's only two verses. And he says, and now the Lord God, and so you hear he, he says Yahweh. Now Yahweh Elohim, that brings to, he understands who Yahweh is, and he says, Yahweh Elohim of Israel has dispossessed the Amorites from before his people Israel. Should you then possess it? That's his first argument. If God did, if the Lord God of Israel did this, then what gives you the right to come in and claim it for yourself? That's it. That's the thrust of his first argument. Uh, and so the, the second argument then develops, uh, even more. And notice, Ammonites aren't even on the scene when any of this happened. And so then he says, uh, will you not possess whatever Chemosh your God gives you to possess? So he, he plays off of his first statement. Yahweh, the God of our God, the God of Israel, gave us this land. Don't you take possession of whatever Chemosh gave you? Subtext, did Chemosh ever give you anything? So his conclusion is, so whatever the Lord our God takes possession of before us, we will possess. End of argument. Now, the thing, there's a mistake here. And the mistake is that Chemosh was not a god in the Ammonite pantheon. Chemosh is a god in the Moabite pantheon. So there's all kinds of, you know, liberals will point out, well, see, Bible's not right here. Hogwash. The Bible is absolutely correct. This is what Jephthah said. Now, Jephthah is not being inspired by God in his arguments. So, see, the Scripture, under divine inspiration, the Holy Spirit is going to accurately write down exactly what was said, whether what was said was true or false. But he's going to accurately write down exactly what was said, and so we learn from this that Jephthah isn't as up on everything. He's not knowledgeable about everything. And also probably there's a certain amount of fluidity in how these gods were, gods and goddesses were used and, and worshipped, whatever. But um, the Ammonites get the point. Uh, in the ancient Near East, see, each nation had their own set of deities. 
And so it was, uh, whether it was Moloch or whether it was Chemosh or whether it's Baal or whether it's Dagon, uh, they all, they were the same, different names in different nations, but they understood that those points. So he does make his point. Nobody's going to go, well, you got the name wrong, so that the argument doesn't work. No jailhouse lawyers on the Ammonite team. Uh, then he gives a personal argument. He says, now, are you any better than Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab? Now, remember, Balak was the king who called in uh, Balaam, uh, the, the prophet from somewhere off in Mesopotamia, to come in and curse Israel. And uh, Balak was the king who uh, ultimately came up with the plan that the way to defeat the Israelites was to send all the uh, young uh, Moabite women in among their troops and seduce them and cause them to uh, get distracted and fail. And and so the argument that, that Jephthah uses here is he says, are you better than Balak who, who defeated us? Did he ever strive against Israel? Did he ever fight against them? And they did. And he said, you're not any better than he is. That's the thrust of that argument. And then there's a chronological argument in verse 25 or 26. Um, which is it? Did I miss, misstate that? In 20, um, 20, this should be 26. While Israel dwelt in Heshbon and its villages in Aurora and its villages, and in all the cities along the banks of the Arnon. Okay, what is he saying here? When Israel defeated uh, Og, uh, uh, Sihon and Og, they set up their villages in the area north of Moab, all the way up, all the way up to the Jabbok. That was 300 years ago. So where have you been for the last 300 years? You know, why hasn't anybody been coming along knocking on our door for the last 300 years saying, we stole our land? So you're just making it up. And the conclusion that he reaches, that Jephthah reaches, therefore I have not sinned against you. I am not at fault, uh, meaning Israel has not sinned against them, but you wronged me. By fighting against me, may the Lord, the judge, render judgment this day between the children of Israel and the people of Ammon. So he said it's the Lord's battle. The battle is the Lord's. How many times do we hear uh, leaders say that in Israel? So this leads us up to the point uh, just prior to the uh, the vow of, of, um, of, of Jephthah. But what we see in verse 29 is the turning point. Then the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of Yahweh, came upon Jephthah. And we have these various terms that are used. He's clothed with Jephthah, he clothes himself with Jephthah, he uh, uh, comes upon Jephthah. And it, it is not for the spiritual life. So many people confuse the role of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament with the role of the Holy Spirit in the church because they confuse Israel with the church. Uh, The Spirit of the Lord does not come upon anyone in the Old Testament in reference to their spiritual life. He comes only upon 
For example, the architects, the builders, the craftsmen, the carpenters, the jewelers of the who built the furniture and uh, the uh, everything related to the tabernacle and the and the temple, and gives them skill uh, to do what they're going to do. He comes upon a couple of priests. He comes upon kings, and he comes upon prophets, but nobody else. They're all leaders. And I counted it up one time that at best you might have 50, probably not more than 100 people had any relationship to the Holy Spirit in the entire Old Testament. Nobody else did. So it's not a, a spiritual life thing. And it did, it wasn't for anything other than giving them uh, leadership ability in a particular situation. And so we read that Jephthah then makes this vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver the people of Ammon into my hands, then it will be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the people of Ammon shall surely be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt burnt offering. That's where we'll start next time because there's a lot of controversy over that. And we'll take some time to just go through this uh, down through the rest of the chapter next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things tonight. Uh, may we recognize that even in times of difficulty in our nation, that you may providentially raise up leaders that are not uh, fitting the qualifications of pastors or not fitting other qualifications. They may not even be believers, but they are people that you have put in place for a particular reason. And we may never really understand that, uh, but that you raise up these people to be our leaders and they come out of our culture so they're as flawed as we are. Uh, Father, so we need to deal with some of these issues with a lot more grace than, than some people do. So, Father, give us wisdom and skill in understanding these things, especially as we make choices related to uh, leaders for this country and this election ne- that now and the next week. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.